Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Welcome to December, the darkest month of the year. A traditional time of ghost stories as the shadows grow long and the house begins to creak against the warmth inside and the frigid cold of nature outdoors. And we have the ghost story of ghost stories for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Demonic possession, witches, murder, hordes of bats, seances, sacrifices to the devil, and more ghosts than you can shake a stick at. That's right, in celebration of my lovely co-host Krista Carmen's new novel, Daughters of Block Island, which is being hailed as a new classic of gothic horror, we will be bringing you true tales of horror, murder, and hauntings from New England. And today we begin in Rhode Island with the tale of Bathsheba and the true story of the Conjuring Haunting. Let's begin. There's a legend of a murderous and devil-worshipping witch that once dwelled in Rhode Island in the early 1800s by the name of Bathsheba. She was a descendant of witches hung in Salem and a creature of unimaginable evil. While babysitting a neighbor's infant, she pierced the child's skull with a needle, sacrificing the baby to her dark lord, Satan, and using the sinister powers she attained, was never brought to trial or court for the callous murder. At 32 years old, she seduced a successful farmer named Judson Sherman with spells and black magic, and the two married residing on his 200-acre farm where she'd torture and starve her servants. They'd have four children, but none would live past seven, all sacrificed to the devil. When her husband caught her in the act of sacrificing their newest infant to Lucifer, fatally stabbing the weak old child while mumbling demonic incantations, she cackled and spat at him, then ran off to the yard where she climbed an ancient oak tree, slipped a noose around her neck, swore her allegiance to the devil, and vowed to haunt and torment anyone who dwelled on the now forsaken land, then leapt off, snapping her neck. Her body instantly turned to stone as death took her. Now her malevolent spirit haunts northern Rhode Island, a demonic figure with a broken and disjointed neck, hand and feetless, with a horrific head, a swirling mass of rotten flesh, resembling a broken wasp's nest wrapped in cobwebs, tormenting and torturing the foolish souls who come to inhabit her land. This legend has become so pervasive that the Burlville Cemetery, where her grave is located, has become a tourist destination for those obsessed with the occult. Seances are held, Ouija boards are left, along with animal skulls, crystals, money, and random trinkets. Vandals knocked off the decorative metal ball that sat on one of the fence posts and splashed red paint over the remaining decorative ball. 
after the cracked headstone was painstakingly repaired by local historians, vandals damaged it. And now it is kept in an undisclosed location. Locals fearful of more damage if the nearly 200-year-old gravestone is put back in its rightful place. And the real issue at hand is that these myths and legends of a demonic witch who murdered children and hung herself appear to be complete and utter bullshit. These bizarre accusations and rumors didn't even exist at all until the 1970s, 140 years after the death of the real Bathsheba. The real Bathsheba Sherman was born on March 10, 1812, to Ephraim Thayer and Hannah Taft, and historians cannot find a trace of evidence that she was related in any way to the accused witches hung in Salem. She married Judson Sherman when she was 32, and they had four children. The Shermans lived on what's now known as Collins Taft Road, many miles from the land she is said to haunt. And Bathsheba most likely never set foot in the house where she is said to now dwell in, a house now known as the Conjuring House because of the film based on this absurd legend. Bathsheba died on May 25, 1885, from a sudden attack of paralysis, which most likely just meant a stroke, at the age of 72, according to the obituary published in the Burlville Gazette. A Baptist minister officiated at her funeral services. The newspaper said Bathsheba was, quote, the last member of the Thayer family, once numerous and well-known in this town. That's just about all there is. There are no photos of Bathsheba, no inquest or investigation into witchcraft, no murders, no records of anything sinister. Betty Minucci, president of the Burlville Historical Society, says, quote, The true story is, there is no story. If something, anything like this would have ever happened, it would have been blown up in the newspapers. The newspapers back then loved that stuff, end quote. Historical investigative journalist Jaime Rubio says, quote, Bathsheba lived and died without any mark against her name. Her obituary was that of a decent Christian woman. The real crime is that someone decided to make up horrific lies about Bathsheba in the 1970s, and it's gone on too long. So how did this innocuous Christian woman, who lived scandal-free her entire life, come to be known over a hundred years after her death as a demonic monster who practiced witchcraft and sacrificed children to the devil? Well, let's get into it. Buckle up and prepare for a wild, wild ride. Part 1. The Perrins in the late 60s, Roger and Carolyn Perrin were living in the suburbs of Cumberland, Rhode Island, with their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. But a dark series of events would unfold that led Carolyn to seek out a new place to live. The first thing that happened was their dog, an African Basenji, that just happened to be named, you guessed it, Bathsheba, was struck by a car and seriously wounded, and had to be put down right there in the street by a police officer who shot the poor creature. And I don't know, I guess this is some old school shit. 
a police officer comes across a wounded dog and just executes it in the street. I'd be fucking livid if a cop shot my dog. I don't care how bad it was hurt, especially right in the middle of the street. The children, of course, were traumatized. And then the neighborhood boys, all age 12, by the way, formed some kind of juvenile delinquent gang. And apparently a young girl was reportedly bound to playground equipment, gagged and sexually assaulted. Obviously, this awful event caused a great deal of fear. And Roger and Carolyn forbid their daughters to play with the other children in the neighborhood. Forbid them from even going outdoors, which led the other children to call Carolyn a witch, saying she was an evil sorceress casting wicked spells. And when the parents took a family vacation, they returned to find their home had been ransacked. Their large storage freezer dumped of its content, all the food spoiled. And worst of all, the family cat, Scrunch, had been bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat. Its skull crushed, every bone in its body broken. Jeez, that's so horrible. I know. Like, the 70s kids were fucking insane, dude. Yeah, my God. Uh, It was evident the next-door neighbor's son had been involved, as he was covered in scratch marks. Carolyn confronted his mother, who denied it. The police were called and did nothing. So Carolyn's eldest daughter, Andrea, found the kid alone one day and proceeded to beat the crap out of him, causing more consternation in the neighborhood. Yeah, 70s suburban street justice delivered 12-year-old style. (laughs) Uh, Then a neighboring man started his truck one day and suffered a massive heart attack, his foot falling on the gas pedal and the truck barreled into the parents' yard, slamming into their rock garden, shuddering to a stop on a massive stone. The weird rumors of witchcraft exploded. The man's wife screaming that the parents' rock garden was a graveyard they'd built to conjure demons, and that Carolyn was a wicked witch responsible for the death with her spellcraft. And it was all too much for Carolyn, who began to pine for a home in the country, away from crazy neighbors, Somewhere where her daughters could frolic in the woods and be away from the evil neighborhood children. Someplace wholesome where they can make a new start. And though they couldn't afford it, Carolyn began looking for homes in the country and discovered a classified ad for a 10-room colonial farmhouse with a barn on 200 acres in Harrisville for $75,000. Telling no one, Carolyn went and viewed the property, known as the Old Arnold Estate, as it had originally been in the hands of a family named Arnold for many generations. It was now owned by a kindly old gentleman named Mr. Kenyon, who showed her around the property, explaining how the barn had survived the Hurricane of 38 because it had been built of solid oak center beams by a master shipwright. The hurricane had been so powerful it had ripped out the apple orchard, leaving only one forlorn apple tree. It was a scorching hot day, but when they entered the house, Carolyn was delighted to find it nice and cool inside. The house was two stories with ten rooms. There were wide planked floors which creaked as they walked about. The latches were all antique wrought iron, and there were little cubby holes hidden throughout. The old man explained the estate was one of the original Providence plantations and had been deeded in 1680, and the house completed in 1736. 
and was one of the last of the original colonial homes remaining in Rhode Island. There were four fireplaces, which were all boarded up. When Carolyn asked the old man why he boarded up the fireplaces, he just gave her a wry grin and said, to keep the swallows out of the chimneys. Carolyn was instantly smitten with the home, drawn to it in an almost preternatural way. And when the old man said to her that it was a wonderful place to raise a family, she knew she had to have it, that it was destiny. She wrote him a check for $500 to hold the house, an amount that completely depleted their bank account. She knew it was a hasty and bold move, especially one to make without the rest of her family but she was sure they would all agree when they saw the property. And luckily for Carolyn, she was right. Though her husband balked at first, when Roger finally saw the place, he was as captivated as she was. He talked to the elderly owner, explaining their financial situation, and the old man agreed to work with them, and even lower the asking price. And so, in mid-December of 1970, the deal went through, and in January of 1971, the Perone family began moving in. Immediately, strange things began to happen. Mr. Kenyon was still there, packing the last of his things when they arrived, and greeted them in the kitchen. Both Andrea and Cindy saw a man standing in the corner of the kitchen, behind the door that led to the dining room. Yet, no one else saw him. And when this mysterious figure was brought up to Carolyn, she insisted that no one else was there and Mr. Kenyon was alone. None of the ancient keys that Mr. Kenyon gave Carolyn worked. And when she asked him about this, he simply said, I never lock the doors. No one will bother you here. Not creepy at all. <laughs> it's probably all bullshit, though. <laughs> I know. It's Well, we'll get to that. As Mr. Kenyon left, he pulled Roger aside and whispered to him. For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Though it was the dead of winter, the family were tormented with hordes of monstrous flies that would swarm about, sometimes hovering before them as if studying them, often gathering on the window where they would die and fall in massive piles. The fly infestation grew so bad that they actually called an exterminator, but it did no good and a pervasive stench of rotten flesh began to emanate, sometimes so strong it would cause them to gag. Roger was sure something had died in the house and was rotting somewhere. He searched and searched, seeking out the elusive smell of death, but could find no animal corpse or rotting garbage. The house was unnaturally cold, certain rooms colder than others, certain spots icy and frigid. In an effort to warm the house, Carolyn unboards the fireplace in the living room and cleans it out, starting a roaring fire. Once the fireplace was open, the paranormal activity began to quickly ramp up. As Andrea says, Opening the fireplace was essentially an overt act of removing a door, thus exposing a portal. Once that dirty deed was done, open, everything changed. Chimneys are long thought to be portals for ghosts. This is most likely from the strange noises that can emanate from them as heat and cold contract the stone and wood, as well as the frigid drafts they can cause. Sarah Winchester, 
of the famous Winchester House of Mystery actually had many non-functioning chimneys installed on the house as a means of attracting ghosts and appeasing them. But for Carolyn, the first thing that happened when the fireplace was opened was the door to the front hallway that connected the kitchen to the dining room began to mysteriously open as well and would not stay shut. This hallway, also where the cellar door was located, was seen as a place of extreme paranormal energy. A coldness emanated from it, and it often stank of death. Everyone scurried around it. Even the dog wouldn't go there. In a moment of desperation, Roger grabbed some twine and bound the door shut. But in the morning, the door was open again, and the twine was in a frayed ball outside Roger's bedroom door. Good, we're hearing a lot of that today. (laughs) (laughs) One day, Cynthia, late for the school bus, ran through the hall to collect her school books, and a ghastly phantom appeared before her. The same figure they had seen lurking behind the door on the day they moved in. But in her rush, she moved right through him, inhaling his ghostly essence. Afterwards, she grew sick and was bedridden for days after the encounter. The mysterious figure was seen so many times by the children that they even named him, calling him Manny. And though Cynthia's encounter resulted in her becoming bedridden, Manny was seen as a benevolent spirit that looked over and protected the family. There was a host of apparitions lurking in the house. Andrea says the house was a time machine of sorts where spirits from different times dwelled. As she explains, quote, the farmhouse had a life of its own. Its doors were not simply wooden and hardware barriers between rooms. They were passages between dimensions, the form and function of time travel, end quote. Some of the ghosts, like Manny, were aware of the family and actually interacted with them, while others, like the Baker boys, father and son farmhands, went about their business oblivious to the family now dwelling on the estate. Cindy and Chrissy's room on the middle floor had a sad little girl ghost that was often calling for its mother. Other spirits dwelled in this room as well, and Cindy would be awoken at night to strange chanting, saying, Seven dead soldiers are buried in the wall. Seven dead soldiers are buried in the wall. Seven dead soldiers are buried in the wall. (sighs) Guess there are seven (laughs) dead soldiers buried in the wall. April and Nancy's room had a spirit as well. A little boy with blonde hair and green eyes, thin and ravished looking, about six years old. April became friends with the sad and lonely little boy and wrote a heartfelt letter about him. That's actually really quite touching and beautiful. She says in the letter, His name is Oliver Richardson. He never spoke to me, but in some way he was able to communicate without speaking. He conveyed his name to me silently, or I named him. I cannot explain it, but I know it's his name. He was always upstairs in the chimney closet. To my knowledge, this is where he dwells, and he never ventures beyond that room. He hides behind the little crawl space door whenever I would go upstairs to play. He would cautiously peek out as if to see if I was safe. He merged tentatively to settle beside me on the floor. He felt comforted by my presence. I know he did. 
In some ways, we comforted each other. He never participated in my play, would pick up my little dolls and stare at them, fascinated. Whenever he left me, he would always go back into the crawl space, into the eaves as cautiously as he emerged, first peering inside and then carefully looking back behind him, as if to be careful of being followed. I know he was always hiding in there, afraid of something. I'm not sure what, or more likely whom, he never did disclose that to me. He has resided there a long time, and I am sure he is still there at the farm. He is all alone. He has been abandoned long ago. I know in my heart his short life was tragic. As a child myself, I could feel his fright, the pain he was in, and all I could do was keep him company. Because he had chosen me, I felt compelled to protect him. I told no one except Kathy, and that was many years later. As I lost my own innocence, my identity becoming altered with age, I too abandoned him. Over the years, it has caused me sadness and regret. Nancy had, without anyone's permission, given all the closet toys to a needy family community. Her heart was in the right place, but it broke my heart to come home one day and have all the objects from my childhood completely gone, as if they had never existed at all. I mourned that loss and never returned to the chimney closet. Nancy didn't realize what she had done. While generously helping the living, she had inadvertently robbed her sister of what remained of a childhood and in the process deprived two lonely souls of the toys they had loved and shared. They were all Oliver had. Then I was all Oliver had, and I went away as well. I was lost to him, and he was lost to me. When I was older and I moved into the middle bedroom, he would often crack the closet door and peek in just to let me know he was still there, and I would ignore him. As I grew older, he would gaze into Nancy's room from the same adjoining closet. We were rowdy teenagers then, doing things teenagers do. I would notice him watching me through a crack in the door. It was then his woeful countenance would crack into disappointment and uncertainty. Disappointment and disdain that I wouldn't acknowledge him. None of my sisters could see him, so I ignored him. I'm not sure why. I think it was because he represented a time in my life that was lost. The age of innocence, when we shared time together, is one in which he is trapped, destined to remain forever. A time I wanted to keep, but could never again recapture. He remains a victim of his own untimely death. It's, it's something, isn't it? That's definitely something. Like, imaginative little kids there. Yeah. Gotta give it to them. It's beautiful. It's one, one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, slowly, the supernatural activity began to become malevolent and violent. One day, Carolyn was in the barn when a hand scythe levitated off an upper beam. It came towards her and sat there, suspended in the air, floating ominously, before it spun and came whipping at her with incredible speed and force, slamming right into her neck and shoulder. Luckily, she'd been wearing a thick leather coat, which absorbed the blow, but the jacket was torn and damaged from the savage, ghostly attack. Another time, Carolyn, fresh from the shower and getting dressed, was attacked by a coat hanger. The hanger lifted off the closet rack, then flew at her, smacking her over and over, severely bruising her. Carolyn goes to her husband, shows him the bruises. 
says she wants to sell the house. Roger tells her she's exaggerating. The coat hanger probably just fell off the shelf. He refuses to believe in any of it, stating firmly that ghosts are not real. He's a traveling salesman and starts spending more and more time away from the house, off on the road. The marriage becomes rocky, especially as electricity bills are extraordinarily high and they can't figure out why, which drives the hardworking Roger, the breadwinner of the family, berserk. At one point, he even demands the electric company install a new meter, but it does nothing. In fact, the bills grow even higher. Tensions are rising between Roger and Carolyn, and it would eventually be revealed that Roger, during his time away as a traveling salesman, was actually having an affair. The haunting continued. Clocks stopped. Brooms swept over floors by themselves. The animals acted strangely. The cat hissing at nothing and bolting from the rooms. The closet contents would be emptied onto the sofa. Toys going missing. All the spookiness you can imagine befell the ancient farmhouse. Bats swarming and flying in the house. Owls hooting in the night. Blackbirds gathering when Nancy befriends a girl named Lenore. Just like the Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Raven. There's no way they're making this stuff up. None. (laughs) (laughs) One night, Carolyn watched in terror as the dresser erupted in flames. Sparks flew, the fire behaving oddly, singing like a bird as the drapes caught. But then, poof, it was gone. Carolyn begins to lose weight, feels she is prematurely aging. Don't we all? Growing wrinkled and haggard before her time, she begins to have fainting spells. Carolyn begs Roger for help telling him the family is being accosted by malevolent spirits from beyond the grave. Roger, though still an unbeliever, says he will try to spend more time at home, and the two try to patch up their frayed relationship. They agree to go on a romantic date night to rekindle the flame between the two of them. They go to the movies and then to an Italian restaurant, as, according to them, Italian is the most romantic of foods. You think so? (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Oh, it's bizarre. That night, lying in her king-sized waterbed beside her husband, an event would transpire that would convince Carolyn the house was truly haunted by a specter of unimaginable evil. As Carolyn lay there, an apparition appeared before her. She describes it as green-brown jersey dress, plain, long, with pockets on both sides of the bodice, arms long but no hands. Dress went to the floor but with no feet, floating above, threatening, intimidating, wants to kiss me, wants to kill me, ugly beehive head, a hornet's nest, a broken neck, snapped, hanging to the side, no eyes, no mouth, Gray mesh cobwebs, cold, so cold, can't breathe, violent, evil, death. Someone should be a horror writer. (laughs) She supposedly, these are the exact words she jotted down in a notebook after the the event. That's why it's all disjointed. It wants to kiss me. 
Interesting indeed. Me. Yeah, I like that. She is unable to move, frozen. She diverts her gaze to her husband lying beside her and sees the wicked spirit has scratched him all up. He's covered in cuts and bleeding. She wonders for a moment if he is dead. But when she whispers, God help me, the figure disappears. Andrea says she dreamed of the figure that very night, and it woke her up, and she could hear her mother screaming, but couldn't move either. And Cindy says she's seen the figure too, and says it comes in to kiss her goodnight after she's been tucked in. She says of the spirits, She's the one that hates mommy. It's fucking spooky, man. That's (laughs) Roger is irate to wake up in the morning covered in scratches. Afterwards, he begins sleeping on the sofa, again spending more and more time on the road and away from the house and family. Okay, okay, let's take a step back here and look at this. So we now know Roger was having an affair. And while Cynthia isn't aware of his actual infidelity at this time, come on, she's definitely cognizant that something is terribly wrong with their relationship. And she's got to have her suspicions. So they go on a romantic date night. They're drinking wine, eating Italian food, then return home to their waterbed. And at some point, Roger is deeply scratched across his back. And the children hear strange noises coming from the room. Hmm, I wonder what was going on in there. It seems obvious to me what happens on a waterbed after a drunken date night that results in strange noises and scratched bodies. And Carolyn, having a horrific nightmare about a strange woman that is intruding on her love life. A strange woman leaving marks on her naked husband. I mean, for me, it's really not hard to put two and two together. I'd say that's a very solid theory. (laughs) But Carolyn, Carolyn is distraught. She wants to sell the house. The family simply can't afford it. And oddly enough, all five of the girls say they love it there. That they'd never been happier and never want to move. Carolyn becomes obsessed and starts combing through history books in the library. The archives at the Burlville and Gloucester Town Hall. According to her, It would be in the village of Clapchet, scouring the archives, that she discovered the name of the, quote, arch-rival and nemesis, the mistress of the house, Bathsheba Sherman, end quote. And so the legend begins. Why did Carolyn fixate on this woman? I mean, I don't know, most likely because they'd had a dog by the same name, right? She claims she discovered a written inquest regarding the death of an infant, but no one besides Carolyn has ever seen it. To this day, the mysterious inquest has never seen the light of day. It honestly appears to be completely made up. There's claims of a mysterious town historian named Mr. McKetchen, who told her of the evil rumors that surrounded Bathsheba, saying she was a bitter vindictive, hateful, and unholy woman who starved and beat her staff, that the womenfolk considered her a harlot and men leered. He said she was a ravishing beauty in youth, but her wicked ways had cursed her 
and turned her into an ugly crone. Not only is there no proof whatsoever as to these fantastical allegations, it also appears this town historian never existed at all. Many elite scholars and historians have researched these crazy stories, including Edna Kent, President Emeritus of Gloucester Heritage Society, Betty Minucci, President of the Burleville Historical and Preservation Society, Pat Mertens, the Burleville Town Historian, and Joyce Remington, President of Burleville H&S. None of them had ever found anything to suggest Bathsheba was anything other than a good Christian woman. And none of them have ever heard of a town historian by the name of Mr. McCurchin. Uh, like we said earlier, it's revealed Roger was having an affair around this time. And like, like I said before, this seems to really say something to me. Because Carolyn is experiencing all this dread, paranoia, and anxiety. And I just think she felt something was deeply wrong with her marriage. And in order to escape reality, she delves into all this research. She becomes obsessed with researching true crime. Nothing wrong with that. It's a great distraction from life. I can tell you firsthand, it's almost like a drug. (laughs) And she's trying to tie it all back to this house as if to find an excuse for why her life isn't working. And she wants to blame it all on an interfering woman. When did everything start going wrong in her life? When the family dog named Bathsheba was hit by a car. It was the catalyst. The death of Bathsheba had led her to this house that led her family to the brink of implosion. And what had happened to her back in Cumberland? She'd been accused of being a witch. And now she's the accuser. It's so weird. It is indeed very weird. But I think this theory that we we have going here is, is makes a hell of a lot more sense than what these sort of descriptions of supernatural activity stemming from a woman who, by all accounts, just does not support anything having to do with witchcraft or black magic it's crazy and somehow carolyn becomes fixated on the idea that bathsheba is buried on her property and not in the cemetery where her tombstone sits saying it was hinted at by the kindly old made up historian that's just as much a figment of her imagination as the ghosts she becomes convinced bathsheba is buried beneath a large bell-shaped stone by the well then While conducting all of this ghoulish research, she's stabbed in the leg by a phantom needle, just as Bathsheba once supposedly killed a neighbor's infant by jamming a needle into the base of his skull. She's loving this insane drama. It's an escape from reality. and It's good stuff, too. I love it. It's it's just not real. And it's also maligning a completely innocent woman. But Bathsheba wouldn't be the only ghost who Carolyn was able to uncover haunted the land. Deep into her research, Carolyn also discovers that one of the owners, named Susan Arnold, had hung herself in the barn on the very beam where the scythe had leapt from to attack her. (laughs) But as we'll see, how she came to this conclusion is ridiculous and bizarre. Okay, so the land had been owned by a family named Arnold, as we said in the beginning. 
And while it's now known as the Conjuring House, its real title and how it's known to locals is the Old Arnold Estate. And as Susan Arnold had hung herself in 1866, there's an obituary in the Pascawag Herald. Susan Arnold's suicide also appears in the April 18th, 1866 edition of the Evening Star. The only problem is these Arnolds aren't related at all. It's a common name. And Susan Arnold hung herself in the storage room of her own house many, many miles away in a completely different district. Not only did the suicide not happen in the barn, there's nothing to suggest that Susan Arnold had ever even stepped foot on the property where Carolyn says she died. Then she states that Susan's husband, John Arnold, also took his own life in the attic of the house where his ghost remains. Okay, so there was a John Arnold whose father had owned the house, but he was not married to Susan. The two had nothing to do with each other. This John Arnold presumably did spend some time in the house, but only as a child. And he did, in fact, commit suicide, but not in the house where he hadn't been since he was a child. The obituary clearly states, quote, John A. Arnold died at his home near Tarkiln, end quote, miles away. And it was in 1911, 45 years after this Susan's death. They weren't married. They had no relation whatsoever to each other. He was elderly and extremely sick and in great pain. So he drank poison to hasten his imminent death. What it seems like Carolyn is doing is just listing any tragedy that happened to any family anywhere near the farmhouse by the name of Arnold, even though this was a common name and New England historians confirm there was no common relations to these different Arnold families, saying there were hundreds of families with the name Arnold. In possibly the worst example of Carolyn appropriating history for her bizarre cause, she also brings up what was a very famous an infamous true crime story at the time, and tries to tie it to the house as well, the sad and tragic story of Prudence Arnold. Carolyn claims in her research she found the story of a young girl who was brutally murdered on the property and whose ghost haunts the land. Carolyn's daughter, Andrea, will later write about this ghost. Prudence Arnold, the fairest of them all, so young, Few details of her life left to punctuate that tragic passing. It was later discovered she had been raped and murdered by a local farmhand who then took his own life. And the only thing is, there are more than a few details. It's actually a famous and easily researchable case. Prudence Arnold was born in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, and was the daughter of Eber and Charlotte Arnold. Tragically, her father died when Prudence was just a year old, and her mother died when she was three, making her an orphan. But she was taken in as a foster child by one Anon Richardson. She was a strikingly beautiful girl, and at just 11 years old, a 22-year-old man named William E. Knowlton asked her to marry him. At first, she just giggled at the frankly disturbing and extremely inappropriate suggestion that an 11-year-old be married to a grown man. But when he pressed her, eventually, she flat-out refused him. In a fit of anger, jealousy, and rage, the scorned Knowlton then snuck into her home, 
followed her to the second story and slit her throat with a razor blade, nearly decapitating her. A jury of inquest was held on January 31st, 1849, in which it was discovered that Knowlton killed her out of, quote, love and jealousy, end quote, when she refused to marry him. This was a well-documented crime that became known as the Uxbridge Tragedy. But as is obvious by just the name, it happened in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, not in Rhode Island. Though Uxbridge isn't far, and it is right on the Rhode Island border, the murder most certainly didn't happen anywhere near the farmhouse. And though the little girl's last name is Arnold, she was not connected in any way at all to the Arnolds who owned the farmhouse. Like we've said, it was a very, very common name. But Caroline somehow convinces herself otherwise. Caroline confides in her lawyer about the horrific supernatural events unfolding. And to her surprise, he is a believer and tells her that he too has a haunted house. But he's just learned to live with the ghosts. That the less attention he gives them, the less they bother him. Carolyn, frantic at this point, tells him this is no innocent poltergeist. She's dealing with pure evil saying about Bathsheba, quote, she's dying to live in my house. The bitch can have it. And if she wants my husband so badly, she can have him too, end quote. If she wants my husband so badly, she can have him too. I mean, come on, read between the lines. I don't know how more people don't notice this. Like it just, it just really struck me when I'm reading these books. He's cheating on her. Their marriage is falling apart. And she's literally blaming the ghost of an innocent woman. Yeah, and that's like a way, sorry to interrupt you, but that's a way, like, more interesting angle, if you will, like, then, I don't know, it's just, it's just crazy, like you said. What's the eighth rule of of a surviving a gothic novel? (laughs) The supernatural is, what is it? Real world, it has a real world uh, root, it's a real world explanation, Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's kind of crazy that not more people have commented on this aspect of the case. Not really, no, not many, no one almost. Or no or no one. <laughs> I mean, I, I say <laughs> not, not many, like, at least yeah. like the details are included in the daughter's book. So it's like, yeah. you would think that, I don't know. It's weirder they don't mention him cheating until like the, the last, but, but you have to get like to the end. You know what I mean? And you're like, and then you start thinking about it, you know, but they do constantly say he's always on the road. He never believed in it. He was he'd never wanted to be home. We never saw him in like it was, it was a big issue. Um, it, But it all gets crazier, you know, much, much crazier. As soon as the infamous Ed and Lorraine Warren get involved. Part two, the Warrens. Word of the haunting starts to spread. And in October 1973, famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren caught wind of it. I'm sure our listeners need no introduction to Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were ghost hunters and demonologists traveling the world to expel evil forces and founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, the oldest ghost hunting group in New England, way back in 1952. To most, they are seen as hucksters and scam artists. All the most famous cases they were involved with led to a deep falling out with the participants, often over money. This case included. 
they famously tried to pass off pictures of their assistant at the Amityville Horror House as photographic evidence of a ghost. Which that's the one that just always gets me. It's a creepy picture, but it's incredibly obvious that it's their assistant, and you can see him in other pictures. <laughs> Yeah, that one that one kills me. <laughs> and there's actually a new documentary on Netflix right now called The Devil on Trial about an exorcism the Warrens performed that coincidentally led to a murder. In this case, too, accusations of fraud abound, as well as them ripping off the family involved for financial gain. And I do believe that the subject matter of the documentary, The Devil on Trial, is the plot point of the third Conjuring movie. I don't know if you've oh, seen it. Oh, is it? No, yeah. I, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's t- it's a terrible movie. Is it? <laughs> it's not good. At least, I mean, the first two Conjurings I find watchable. The third one is just no, no good. <laughs> when I was a little kid, my best friend had a copy of the book, The Demonologist, The True Story of Ed and Lorraine Warren by Gerald Brittle. And uh, we would totally freak ourselves out reading it. Just like looking at the pictures and there was like, you know, that picture of Annabelle, the doll, which is oh, actually yes. just Raggedy Ann, but she's behind the glass. Yep. It, it's great spooky fun. Uh, I'm I'm glad they exist or existed. I, I love them in theory. I mean, I honestly consider them charlatans myself, but I also I love magic, magic acts, freak shows, carnival side shows. They're all fake. <laughs> They're just creepy acts meant to entertain. Yeah. Absolutely. In the end, it would be this case that would eventually catapult them into worldwide celebrity status, as this is the case that inspired the first film, The Conjuring. And the entire franchise and Conjuring universe stemmed from the parents. But more on that later. The Warrens heard about what was going on and headed out. And when Roger heard that Ed and Lorraine Warren were on their way, he wanted nothing to do with them and like, just bolted, just went right on the road. <laughs> but the rest of the family welcomed the Warrens into their home. Lorraine confirms it is the evil spirit of the terrible witch Bathsheba that is haunting them, saying the name was revealed to her in a psychic vision before they'd even met. <laughs> in my opinion, you know, this is straight up carnival hucksterism. In the trade, and the carnies, they call it a hot read where you just use clues to ascertain the truth and spin it out. And that's what all these psychics, mind readers, clairvoyants, and fortune tellers do and have been doing. You just watch the Guillermo del Toro movie, Nightmare Alley. Yes, I love that They detail the whole process of how to do a hot read, you know? Uh, So Lorraine Warren coming up with the name Bathsheba all on her own during a psychic vision. Come on, it's absolute bullshit. She heard the name. Carolyn was obsessed with it. Carolyn would tell anyone who listened to it that this woman was somehow buried on the land. And they even had a dog with the same name. That's crazy. But Lorraine not only says she had the name in a vision, she confirms the story of an infant having a needle shoved into its brain by the Wicked Witch. It's all true, true, true. And Bathsheba hung herself on that one forlorn apple tree outside. Furthermore, Lorraine goes on to say that the satanic sacrifice of the infant happened right in Carolyn's own bedroom. That's why the spirit is so strong there, and the bedroom must be boarded up and no one allowed to enter. 
Lorraine also explains that the fly infestation, when they first moved to the home, they weren't any mere flies, but the devil's pets sent to observe them and send word of their lives back to the underworld of hell. The Warrens visit several times, ingratiating themselves with the family. Everyone, that is, but Roger, who sees them as frauds and hucksters looking for a mark and an easy buck. When Andrea tells the Warrens that she feels the ghosts love them and are kind, the Warrens tell them that the evil ghosts are trying to befriend the children in order to infiltrate the family and aren't to be trusted. When Lorraine hears that Nancy had played with a Ouija board, she becomes quite upset calling it, as well as tarot cards, part of the dark arts, and says she was, quote, romping in the devil's playground, end quote. Romping in the devil's playground. I, I love it. I, I love all this shit. It's so fun and spooky, even if it is complete bullshit. I know. It's it's, it's so just... good. <laughs> God. Carolyn, who, as we said, has been losing weight and even having fainting spells at this point, was deemed by the Warrens as being on the brink of possession. So the Warrens say they must hold a seance and is the only way to expel the evil forces from the house. As Lorraine Warren says, Someone invited a demon into your home. I'm not sure if it was Bathsheba who made a deal with the devil, as I suspect, or if it was children playing dangerous games with a Ouija board, or if it arrived through some insidious supernatural pathway. But it is there, and it must be expelled. And there is only one way I know of to permanently abolish the evil from your home. A seance. How is a seance cleansing? Anyway, I don't get that. It seems like a way to get the ghosts all wound up, right? In my opinion. (laughs) What's the difference between using a Ouija board and having a seance, right? I don't know. It's not an exorcism. Yeah, this is a weird approach for sure. And Carolyn was skeptical. A friend warns her against it, saying she'd been in a seance once and it had brought hell to earth. Roger is also very, very against the idea. He thinks it's ridiculous and that the children had been through enough already. The Warrens, being the Warrens, They just go ahead anyway. They arrive pretty much without warning and bringing a whole crew with them. Two cars and a truck full of people and ghost hunting equipment. Roger is irate. He's screaming at Lorraine that she has no right to come into his house, especially with all these people who are setting up cameras, microphones, and infrared equipment. And Matthew, to go along with your amazing theory, think about this from that perspective. These people are setting up cameras and microphones, and he's just worried that somebody's going to find a pair of underwear that don't belong to his life. <laughs> don't tap the phone. You don't want to hear his conversations. Yeah. One of the crew is some kind of priest or preacher wearing a clerical collar. Another is a redheaded lady that's described pretty much exactly as the medium in the movie Poltergeist. She's like the squat woman in thick glasses that was, quote, a spiritual conduit capable of contacting, then communicating with the dead. Carolyn begins to weep uncontrollably, and Roger screams at Lorraine. Look, she can't do it. She's too weak. To which Lorraine replies, she must do this or she will never, ever regain her strength. Look at her. Don't you see what's happening here? One of the crew a professor from Duke University, says to Roger, 
Mr. Perron, this technique is well established. It dates back thousands of years. It is not black magic or hocus pocus or witchcraft. This is a legitimate method for receiving messages from the other side. Oh, come on, professor from Duke University. In the words of Bette Midler, it's just a bunch of hocus pocus. <laughs> so finally, Roger gives in and agrees to hold a seance. And here's where it gets good, ladies and gentlemen. This is what you've been waiting for. Da 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 da. Part four the seance. The spiritual medium, the woman who served as a conduit between the land of the living and the dead, sat at the table with a small black velvet bag, retrieving trinkets and strange talisman she placed before her. The others gathered around the table, lighting candles with homemade matches. Carolyn was in a near catatonic state, unable to move as the scent of sulfur permeated the air. This is bullshit, Roger declared, refusing to enter their circle. But the priest went to him and convinced him to join the others at the table. It's time to begin, Lorraine whispered. The lights were turned off, only the glow of the candles remaining and the medium instructed them to join hands, and then spoke. We are gathered here tonight to reach across, so to call forth the spirits. Carolyn's body jolted, her head jerking up as she began to mumble strange, indecipherable words. Who is here with us? the medium asked. Carolyn's eyes sprung open, her body quaked, and she growled like a ferocious animal. There was a, quote, dark transformation of energy, as black as any moonless night. It was not of this world. Words unheard by mortal souls in this lifetime or any other began spilling from Carolyn's shriveled lips. Ancient, primitive, an unholy demon had entered. Stop it, Roger howled. Stop it now. And then Carolyn's chair began to shift and creak and lifted off the ground, levitating there for a moment, suspended in space. She hovered before them, before the chair shot out from beneath her, tearing across the room and into the haunted hall with, quote, the speed of light, end quote. Carolyn went slamming to the floor, and chaos erupted. All the doors opening and slamming, shutters snapping, latches clicking. People were screaming, and Roger turned, made a fist, and punched Ed Warren straight in the face. His nose erupted into a torrent of blood as he tumbled to the floor with Carolyn. The house rocked on its foundation. The sounds of wood splintering and glass shattering erupted from the cellar. It was paranormal pandemonium as all the spirits in the house wrestled with their earthly bounds and demons from hell itself screeched and shuddered from within the haunted walls. Someone flipped on a light switch and all went still again until Roger began screaming at them, Get the fuck out of my house. Then Roger lifted Carolyn off the floor 
and carried her to the sofa. The crew went to gather their recording devices, but every piece of equipment had apparently been completely destroyed, which is why there is no recording of this event. The ghosts and demons just didn't want their existence confirmed, so it appears. As the psychic left, she turned to Carolyn and said, Your answer lies beneath the bell stone. Confirming that, yes, Bathsheba was buried there on her land. Now, while this seance may appear to be an absolute disaster, guess what? It worked! Yay! Ed and Lorraine Warren saved the day! While the haunting didn't end and paranormal activities such as opening and closing doors still persisted, the malevolence and violence of the activity stopped. While the lost souls remained, the actual demons had been relinquished back to hell. And somehow, Bathsheba seemed to be appeased. Carolyn returned to health. The fainting spells stopped. She gained weight. Her sickly wand was replaced by a healthy flush. But this didn't bring the Warrens and the Perrin family any closer. In fact, they wouldn't speak again for six years, and Roger never became a believer. In fact, like most cases involving the Warrens, a bitter animosity arose. The Warrens, being the Warrens, broke the confidentiality agreement they'd signed with the parents by speaking about the case at seminars, which caused all kinds of ghost hunters and spooky freaks to start showing up at the house, some asking to be let inside and harassing the family. The Warrens also never returned the notebooks Carolyn had written her observations in. The years slipped by, and in 1980, when Roger's infidelity finally came to light, he and Carolyn separated, sold the house to the neighbors, and then divorced, Carolyn moving back to her home state of Georgia. The kids were all devastated. They'd loved it there. Andrea was in college, but Nancy refused to leave, going to the new owners, who really only wanted the land itself, and asked to be caretaker for the house, and they agreed. When Carolyn left, she says she saw a sinister female figure lurking behind Nancy as she waved goodbye to them from the window. When old Mr. Kenyon heard all the strange rumors swirling about his former estate, he went out of his way to deny it, writing letters to the local historical society disputing the weird history that had been made up, saying it was not haunted, had never been haunted, and a few years later, the neighbors sold the house, keeping most of the land, stripping the estate from 200 acres to eight. Though the new owner, Norma Suthcliffe, would let the Ghost Hunters TV show come to the house, she just thought it was amusing nonsense. She'd emphatically state that it was not haunted, and she'd experienced no paranormal activity and dispute every claim about it. Norma ran a successful daycare business for years from the house and was quite dismayed to later hear Andrea had said babies had been levitated out of cribs and placed on the floor by demonic forces. She fiercely denied this, shocker, as well as any other supernatural activity. Yeah, it's a scandalous rumor to start. I mean, not so much that the daycare is haunted, but that children are being misplaced and lost. Yeah, pretty messed up. 
Yeah, and just to be clear, there's never been any complaints about the daycare. And Norma, to this day, is a licensed professional involved with daycare and doesn't have a single blemish on her record. Norma lived in the farmhouse peacefully and happily, running a daycare for over 25 years, from 1987 to 2013, when suddenly hell would erupt upon the house. But it wouldn't be ghosts or demons that brought hell to the house. It would be a movie, released in 2013, that brought worldwide attention and hordes of thrill-seeking ghost hunters and spooky freaks. A movie called The Conjuring. Part 5. The Conjuring. The Conjuring movie is very, very loosely based on the parents' family's experience and was directed by James Wan, creator of both the Saw and the Insidious franchises. The Conjuring was a huge blockbuster and spawned an entire cinematic universe with sequels and spin-offs like Annabelle and The Nun. You know, I saw it in the movie theater and I loved it. It's like a study in every horror ghost story trope. Jump scares aplenty, spooky lighting, general creepiness. Just like on a technical level, not like narrative structure-wise, just like visually, it's it's a great movie. And uh, it's also complete and utter nonsense. Yes, I want to agree with everything that you said about it. It is, it is a very entertain it, it falls into that category of horror movies that are just like thoroughly entertaining like you you start it and you just get sucked into the world it's very well done you know is it like a super deep story no we just covered everything that was that it's you know that they used to create it more or less um but yeah and in the movie carolyn is taken over by the spirit of bathsheba completely possessed and tries to sacrifice her children to the devil in the basement but Ed Warren bursts in and holds a frantic exorcism, freeing Carolyn from her demonic bonds. In reality, Carolyn just fell off a chair and Roger got so pissed off at the lunacy that he punched Ed Warren in the nose. <laughs> uh, well, when they say when it comes to truth or legend, always print the legend. Can see why. It's said that the set of the movie was haunted and cursed as well. Vera Farmiga, who plays Lorraine Warren in the film, says claw marks appeared on her laptop screen. Ooh, claw marks on the computer screen. And actress Shane Caswell, who plays Andrea, says the cast would mysteriously wake up at three in the morning every day. And Shane also claims she felt like she was being watched. An actress on the set of a film felt like she was being watched. Imagine that. <laughs> and Joey King, who plays Chrissy Perrin, claims she developed a rare blood disorder during shooting that mysteriously disappeared when the movie was finished. You don't think this stuff was hyped up as a means of publicity, do you? No. <laughs> Especially as the movie was shot in North Carolina, nowhere near the original house in Rhode Island, and it doesn't even look like the original house. And admittedly from James Wan, it's 99.9% .9 fiction. Yeah, I mean, good grief. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's shit like, the house, the real house, it's like very, it's just a cool house. Like it's got that old farmhouse charm and um, it would have been cooler to to have at least some of the original inspiration more included in the film. But like we said, it's like a very visually entertaining horror film to watch. So, you know, I guess James Wan had a plan and he went with it. And who am I to say that it wasn't the right one? I think the real house definitely looks way cooler and spookier, but 
it might have been like I don't know how much money they had because a lot of these horror movies don't get much money, and they might not have had the money to recreate it. They're just like, we'll just this. We found the spooky house in in North Carolina. It doesn't matter what it looks like. We're shooting. Yes, yes. Money. Did you find the article that I told you about yeah, that the shows Globe. the pictures when it was on the market that showed all the pictures of the inside? Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's very. It, it you know what it what it strikes me as is the perfect place for a writing retreat. Like, I know you oh were man, saying that. That would be so I would cool. love to rent that place out for like a long weekend or a whole week and, you know, play with some of that spooky fun stuff, bring a Ouija board, have a seance just for, if nothing else, clearly, if for nothing else, then just for like some fun writing inspiration. Romp in the devil's playground. <laughs> <laughs> romp in the devil's playground. I brought my tarot cards, kids. It's time to come romp in the devil's playground. <laughs> Uh, yes. I would. I, I'm there. I'm there. I yeah, and there. I think we we should um touch on again just because this the there was a very very recent article I think in mid October about once again about Bathsheba's gravesite and how it's been so frustrating for those members of the historical society to try to preserve that site and to clear her name, which is just crazy to think about it. You have to do something to clear. I mean, you know. They had to clear the witches of Salem, all of their names. And there was a whole thing that actually happened with them. Like Bathsheba lived her entire life with no scandal, like we said. And then something after the fact was just wholly created out of thin air. And and it's just frustrated a lot of people. Yeah, that was the Boston Globe article you sent me. Yeah. Uh, well, like we said, the movie brought hell to the new owner, Norma Sutcliffe. Norma says they were no longer able to sleep because they were constantly woken up at two in the morning by people with flashlights in their yard. People were constantly phoning them up, asking, is this the conjuring house? They received other harassing phone calls as well. She said they ended up living in a state of constant fear and were so traumatized. They actually sued Warner Brothers, saying they brought unwanted attention to their home saying trespassers flocked to the house, bringing threats of actual physical violence, causing sleepless nights and fear of harm. And they were never notified about the film being made or released. And then worst of all, on the internet, these threads started popping up, saying the house was so evil, it needed to be destroyed. Warner Brothers capitulated, and they settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. But it was all too much for Norma, who said at the time, It will never end. It's like Amityville. Can you imagine selling this place right now? But if Norma was dismayed that she'd never be able to sell the house, she was wrong. Because in 2019, paranormal enthusiasts Jen and Corey Heinzen bought the house for $500,000. And after nearly 30 years of absolutely no psychic phenomenon whatsoever. After a successful daycare had been there without a single incident, boom, the ghosts are back, baby. They are back. <laughs> and the new owners who delight in it all said doors were opening and closing, that an eerie smoke-like black mist lingered about, making viral TikTok videos about their claims even saying that the daycare was haunted as well, and everyone knew it, claiming they found a drawing of the bent neck lady made by children from the daycare. Uh, now we're just pulling Mike Flanagan and, and all sorts of crazy stuff into this. 
<laughs> uh, you might think this is uh, some kind of crazy publicity stunt that would, I don't know, allow them to triple the purchase price. And you may be right. For they were able to sell the house to Jacqueline Nunez for a whopping $1,500,250,000. And to seal the spookiness of the deal, the Heinzens even put a clause in the contract saying no family could live in the house year-round because the energy was too powerful. And when talk about a power trip. You you made a million bucks. You turned that house yeah. over and made a million bucks. And you stipulated that the people you sold it to can't even live in it. <laughs> this was all part of an elaborate plan to capitalize on the success of the film and exploit the creepy bullshit history of the house. It was turned into a tourist destination and the Heinzens remained as part of the management of the house and help organize events there. Today, you can rent it out and sleep there. You can host a party or a conference. They'll even let you camp on the property. Fuck yeah, we're, we're going to do it, dude. I, we should totally. We should plan a, a writing retreat, invite all the coolest uh, horror writers in the biz. Fuck yeah. yeah. On Halloween 2022, Nancy, Andrea, and Roger returned for a live-streamed paranormal investigation. <laughs> Carolyn, Chrissy, and Cindy stayed home in Georgia, but participated via the internet. They heard from lots of spirits, and they even rung up their late sister, April, who died in 2017 while they were at it. Happy Halloween, April! How's the spirit world treating you? I, I thought California was weird. Rhode Island's fucking nuts, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Andrea says she misses the house and would like to buy it back and live there. When she told Lorraine Warren this at an opening for The Conjuring, Lorraine said, If you go back, you won't get out alive. Ed had died in 2006 and missed the most successful film version of his investigations. But Lorraine was still alive, basking in the glory of it all and happily reaping any and all financial windfalls that came her way. But she too passed in 2019. In the end, these carnival hucksters had achieved the ultimate scam. They'd become demon-fighting superheroes to the world and made millions off of outright lies. They really are the, the, you know, the most successful scam artists. <laughs> and today, Andrea says about the house, I don't need to own it. It owns me. Andrea wrote three long books about her experience there. And that's where much of the information in today's show comes from. These books are called House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. I read all of the first one and most of the second one. And they're written in this like over-the-top flowery prose, including just like straight-up psycho, psycho babble that's like badly written poetry. It's hard to explain. I mean, it's, it's difficult to read. She doesn't really like mix metaphors as much as she like jumbles them together piling them on top of themselves into like gibberish and they're composed of cliches and even song lyrics and titles but uh the narrative structure is strange too it jumps around from place and time uh she forsakes pretty much all the rules of modern writing which call for a clear concise story and all three of these books make up about 1500 pages 
and it could easily be condensed into a 300 page book or shorter with a good editor who took out the constant repetition and belching of unnecessary wordplay. Uh, she also has no idea what a semicolon is. It just randomly puts them in wherever. <laughs> uh, in an opening chapter titled Prologue in Prayer, Andrea states, quote, It matters that this tale be told with honesty and integrity, end quote. But the story is filled with slanderous tales and bold, outright lies against an innocent woman named Bathsheba, who died in 1885 and is not here to defend herself. And the history of northern Rhode Island and southern Massachusetts is twisted and embellished to the point of just not reflecting reality. In the book, explaining the reason she wrote her story, Andrea says, It is a tale of good and evil, life and death darkness and light. Evil exists. At times it appears as if evil is winning the battle against what is good and pure, kind and sane in this world. The balance seems skewed. Earth's news is very bad indeed. Omnipresent issues of war and peace. Let there be light, truth be told. The human race is immersed in goodness and light. Evil has yet to prevail, though the struggle between them is real. Philosophers and laymen alike, from the greatest minds in history to those merely curious, have wrestled with the concept. Presuming the existence of good and evil, this narrative explores the nature of life and transcendence of death. It poses questions yet does not seek answers, nor will it provide any substantive guidance. There are no definitive answers in this realm. But there are definitive answers. No, Bathsheba Sherman did not sacrifice an infant to Satan in the bedroom of the farmhouse on the old Arnold estate. No, Susan Arnold did not hang herself from the rafters of the barn. These are historical facts. And House of Darkness, House of Light is a book filled with mistruths, bent perceptions of history, and from what I can see, outright lies. I don't know what evil is. I don't believe it on, on a spiritual level like some folks do. But exploiting and slandering a dead woman for fame and money, resulting in the desecration of graves and his historical artifacts, kind of seems evil to me. So if you decide to visit Rhode Island and see the grave of Bathsheba and visit the house that inspired the Conjuring movie, as I myself am going to do one day. Show some respect and kindness. Don't vandalize or desecrate the grave. Don't antagonize the locals. There's nothing wrong with loving the creepy, bizarre, and spooky. It's a lifestyle. But just be a good person while you're doing it. Hell yeah. And uh, yeah, if you do come to Rhode Island, hit me up. Local. Here. <laughs> here and uh, ready to be convinced. You don't even have to convince me to uh, meet you for a, a trek through one of the cemeteries or uh, a visit to the Conjuring House. Properly rented out and vetted first, of course. You hear that, guys? She'll probably sign your, her book for you, too. There you go. Of course. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for listening, fellow freaks and dear listeners, and you know we want to hear from you. Do we get something wrong? Do you have a case you think we should cover? You just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. 
That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. <laughs>